This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled In Shadows, and our author, D.R. Willis, joins me from near Savannah, Georgia. Welcome, sir, to the program. Hi, Jay, and uh, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate this. I'm sorry to take you away from your primary focus. In addition to being an author, you're also involved in an industry that many of us crave. What is that industry, sir? Oh, well, um, we my family makes uh, chocolate. Actually, I'm the one that um, that uh, makes most of the chocolate shapes that we sell for the holidays and novelty items. Um, so I do that maybe 11 hours a day. Incredible! Uh, you have you have my envy uh, on many levels because of that. This is your second book in a series titled "In Shadows." Share with my listeners where the idea for this book came from and what "In Shadows" is all about. Well, a lo- actually, uh, a long time ago, uh, I started writing um, for for um, my uh, mom who. Um, got diabetes, so she, she became legally blind. So I started writing short stories for uh, her and reading to her. And this is going back quite a ways. This is actually the mid-'80s, late-1980s. So um, that it kind of uh, spawned from there. Um, I stopped writing for a while, and all of a sudden it, uh, the story idea came to me that I wanted to do something a little bit longer than a short story, and um, the whole idea came to me uh, rather suddenly. Uh, it's almost as if I woke up with the idea. In the story In Shadows, where does it begin? What's the setting, and what is the premise of the book? Well, the um, the setting is uh, actually right after the war, uh, World War II. So it's around 1940. Actually, this this is uh, pretty much weeks after World War II. So it's in the mid-1940s. It is set in, um, actually it's set in two places. It's set in a in a small town um, near Savannah, a fictional town, and it's also set in a, uh, a small fictional town in New Jersey. And it, it follows um, the father of my main character that was in the first book. Uh, my, the first book, uh, his name was uh, Nick Davis, and um, the, the, uh, and that's set in present times, and now in shadows follows his father and how he gets um, caught up in, uh, I guess you could say, um, with the um, espionage, is a, is a good way to say it. Espionage. Your first book was titled Lonely Deception. Is it important for the reader to read that book? I know from an author's standpoint it is, but is it important to understand the uh, concept of of uh, lonely deceptions in order to understand In Shadows? Well, what I tried to do was I tried to make um, each book, because I also have a, a third book coming out entitled uh, Cascading Lies, which will wrap up the trilogy. But I tried to make each book a standalone book. And, of course, as you said, as an author, I would love it if the reader read Lonely Deceptions first, because it would uh, make it a 
fit better for them for in shadows, but uh, in reality, uh, they could just read in shadows uh, uh, by itself and still enjoy the story. Is it character-driven or is it action and, uh, uh, I guess, existence-driven? I would say it's more character-driven because I have um, um, a lot of, uh, I want to say, relationships going on, and um, you never quite know uh, who is who and who is uh, deceiving who, but the, the, the uh, throughout all of it, the the strongest bond is between Nick Davis and his father Nelson Davis, uh, like a true uh, bond of love between the father and the son, even though they're constantly fighting to uh, find the truth of what is happening um, to make their life so uh, miserable. I guess is, is a good way to say. You have mentioned that In Shadows is set just following World War II. Did you need to do a lot of research, or because it's character-driven, was it simply a matter of crafting the characters to set that set in that uh, that time frame? No, I, I I actually did do a lot of research. I, I mean, I, I, I always do um, research, even when I was writing the uh, book that Lonely Deceptions, which is in present time, but I... Um, I did do a lot of background research on uh, World War II, uh, and of course that era, how they spoke. I watched, I watched movies that were made in the 1940s. I read a few, you know, um, I tried to read a few excerpts of uh, books that was written in the 1940s. I just tried to get the flavor of that era, even though I wasn't uh, actually around then. Uh, you used the word flavor, and I'm thinking again of chocolates. I'm sorry. Chocolates reminds me of uh, several things. First of all, you spend a lot of time in your craft as a chocolatier, and now you're developing your craft as a writer. How do you have time for both? Very good question. A lot of people ask me that because um, uh, people, a lot of people come into the store to actually buy my book because I have some here at the store so that they can get it signed. And that is their number one question. How do I have the time? Because they see me in the store all the time. <laughs> so what I do is I get up at, yeah, I get up about 3.30 in the morning. Oh, boy. And uh, I write, well, yeah, I write from 4.30 to 6 a.m. every single day. So seven days a week I do that. And then if I have my research, I try to do in the evening, even though I'm, I'm kind of tired. So that's, that's what I try to keep that regimen. I try not to miss any days. Because uh, I, I, I do love writing, so that hour and a half uh, whizzes by. And then I come to the uh, store, uh, and we're here for about, again, it's my family. It's uh, all, all Things Chocolate and More is the name of, this, of the uh, family chocolate store. But it's my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, my wife, our 14-year-old daughter, and myself that uh, makes chocolate. That's amazing discipline. Many of my writers uh, don't necessarily approach the craft of being an author the way you do. Some will just write from inspiration. They'll get a, an idea for a story and just sit down and let it run, let the story control the direction that the uh, the storyline takes. You apparently uh, actually have an outline that you work from. Is that the right way to describe how you have crafted this? Yes, I do have a, uh, a mental outline. I never write it down, but I do have a, a mental or I, sh I should say I have an idea of where I want to go, kind of how I want it to begin and end, and then I sort of have to fill out, you know, fill out the middle part of it, the most important part. But, um, well, actually, or well, the ending is, could be the most important part. 
But what I do very briefly is I, I uh, write in the morning, as I said, and then throughout the day as I'm making chocolate, um, I kind of play out the next scene in my head over and over again with all the different kinds of dialogues and, and reactions of the characters. So by the time I sit down the next morning, it's almost written already, and I've kind of known uh, how I want to approach it. Beautiful. In writing In Shadows, was there a, a message that popped out that perhaps you hadn't been planning on sharing with the reader, but it did show up? I think, because um, as I'm writing my books, um, no matter how I try, I always get to more of a suspense-driven story. And even though I there's all these, uh, again, uh, espionage and, and spy things going around and some some murders, and um, there's, it's always more about relationships, which always surprised me, how they feel. Um, you know, they could just break down and weep. And um, I think the, the motion always surprises me and, and how it, it also affects me sometimes. What's the underlying message, do you think? Does it have anything to do with, uh, you mentioned you're in a family business. Do that, any of your... Well, family, that's exactly the, that, that is it. You're, you're right, Jay. It's, it's uh, how important family is. No matter um, what life bestows upon you, um, how you react um, in relationship with your family is very important. Other people have read your works. What has then been the response of your first novel, Lonely Deceptions, and have you had an opportunity to share in shadows with some of those people, and what have they said about it? Yes, I've had a lot of people come back to me that, that they like Lonely Deceptions, and it has come out with some favorable reviews uh, from Kirkus and other um, uh, review houses uh, did like Lonely Deceptions. Yes, we've, we've had uh, quite a few people read in shadows, and they've come back to me and they said, I, I think we like this even better. A word that they've been using is kind of edgy. They mm. just feel it's, it's just more edgy. Uh, they just like they just seem to like it better, more suspense, more of a thriller. You have 138 pages, not a long read. However, uh, in this 138 pages, is it one that's going to appeal to a broad audience? Is it more directed towards a mature audience? How would you describe it? Well, to another good question, I would say... At the very end, or towards the end, um, when someone... I, I don't want to give away the uh, story plot, because um, a lot of my story has uh, many twists and turns in it, but there, there's someone that the father... something that the father, Nelson Davis, finds out uh, as a result of, of his action that is um, that uh, would be that, what you had described as adult-like. Okay. Well, suspense, you've mentioned that that's important for your readers, and apparently you are doing the same with uh, your descriptive of In Shadows. Uh, David, where do we get copies of <laughs> your book? Where do we get copies of your book? Uh, well, if you happen to live near Savannah, you could always pop in my store. Obviously, you would get it uh, signed, but you can um, purchase it at all things. I'm sorry, um, you could purchase it at uh, barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com. Uh, I have a, a website, D r willis books.com and of course i'm on twitter and facebook You're welcome to follow me or like me uh you can get it through all those avenues and you are you should be able to also purchase it at your store if they don't have it um you can just order it from them at your local store absolutely and uh, listeners be on the lookout for the next in this trilogy this particular edition is titled in shadows
his first book, Lonely Deceptions. David, thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. There will be more to come, and how soon will that be released? Uh, thank you, Jay. And uh, actually, the third book and the uh, conclusion of the trilogy should be released um, in less than two months, and it's entitled Cascading Lies. Phenomenal. And it wraps it all up. Phenomenal. Maybe not, maybe not neatly, but it wraps it all up. <laughs> well, for a chocolatier to wrap it up, I think that's uh, that's a great way to uh, to describe the writing of the trilogy. Thank you for joining me today, David. Oh, thank you very much. I, again, I appreciate this. My pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lipman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With Baby and Toddler Instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Love Doesn't Die, and the author is Angela Brent Harris, and Angela joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Angela. Hello. Great. Just really good to have you with us. Uh, This book is uh, an inspiration, sharing your early childhood and your relationship with your dad and other family members. So we look at Love Doesn't Die, and as you put it, it's inspiring, it's spiritually enriched, it's a memoir of life in Jamaica. That has to be beautiful just by itself. Yes, oh, tremendously. (laughs) Right, uh, kind of growing up in in a paradise. Certainly. And then also your home was a bit of a paradise, the way you describe it. it. It certainly was. Some of my fondest memories are living in Jamaica and living in the home setting that I grew up in, um, my mom's garden, you know, alongside with my dad and um, his enthusiasm for jazz mingled with all of that, um, created a long-lasting impression that lives in my heart forever of who I am today. Well, all of that led you to become, as you describe yourself, a peacemaker and a spiritualist. So how did that family life have such an impact on you? Well, it has an impact on me because um, from as long as I can remember, both my father and my mother instilled a spiritual lifestyle and my dad was also very religious as well and um, you know they always 
brought us up with a strong belief in God, which also led us, you know, meet myself and um, my siblings um, to have a great self-worth of who we are, of who, you know, we were as growing up as children and growing up to as young teenagers and adults. And um, they were consistent in who they were and in all the beliefs and that they taught us. My greatest guru was my dad. So I learned a lot of spirituality from him. I learned to meditate from him when I was about 17 years old. And it never it never changed. It, he was just consistent. So it was very easy to admire him, to love him, to follow him in his footsteps in who he was. Um, and day to day and it wasn't like okay today I'm doing this and tomorrow he actually meditated every single day and you know what I did follow in his footsteps because I do meditate twice daily and it has allowed me to not make things worry me I don't let little things bother me and um, you know what I feel free almost like a bird on top of all that your father loved music Yes, definitely. He was a jazz enthusiast. So you he ended played. up so you ended up going to a lot of concerts with him. <laughs> yes. It was uh, magical for me. Um he played basically all the instruments, so it was quite easy for him going to the concerts and seeing him um vibrate with a love for the music, especially jazz like um like us telling you before and um, it was enjoyable the type of instrumental music um, was um, something to behold for me so you grow grow up in a home where the parents understand their responsibility they understand that they need to have a positive influence on their children they have to be examples that that carries into many years of your life that kind of an example so as you look back on your dad and mom do you remember a time when you didn't feel their love I mean was it always there you know what it is amazing that from from as far as I can remember I've never felt unloved or uncared for or unwanted even if I know I did something wrong and I got myself in trouble. Um, I didn't feel like even if they were disappointed or upset with me, it, it's, you, you look into the eyes of my dad and you would see that tenderness and that love, but also you'd see like, I, like him talking with his eyes and saying, you know, I expected more from you. This is not, this is not the angel I know. I, I expected you to do so and so. But then looking at him, you see that warmth in his eyes of love, but wanting so much for his children. And the same with my mom. She um, was a very, she's a very compassionate woman. And even if we did something wrong and she would get upset because she, she's a spicy one. You know, my dad was even keel and, and very soft. Um, but no, she, um, she was full of love and you'd feel it. And after that, she would sit and always reflect or talk to you. You know, she would say, well, you know, you did this and you did that, and 
mommy feels this way, and so would my dad. They would sit with us and discuss. If we ever falter, um, they would reflect and talk with us about what we did wrong or um, how we could have done something differently. Your dad came from a large family. Oh, yes. came from a, a, a large family indeed. And that had a, a great impact on him. Did he Was he raised in that same kind of family, strong family environment? Very much so. Um, he, both his parents were principals, and um, they were very strict, and they were also very loving, very caring, and they wanted the best for their children. And it showed later on because... Um, the type of, like, my father's eldest brother, um, he was a, a disciplinarian, but at the same time, he was so loving and um, so caring, and all the brothers and the sisters, um, you know, the, my uncles and aunts, were um, just the same. They grew up in that environment, positive, yet at the same time, um, very strict, especially they they wanted... Um, my grandparents wanted their children to grow up to be somebody in this world, to be um, educated, and um, and that was important to them. And it trickled on. Yes, surely did. So you have to work at it. A family has to work at it. Oh, definitely. You have to work at it, and it ha- it has to be consistent, um, like a, a chain. You know, it uh, it, it has to flow. And the links of the chain together stay in, intact and um, continuously one after the next, continuously going along without any breakage. What is your life like as a mother? My life, um, I am a spiritualist. I have two boys, two amazingly beautiful souls. Um, that's the only way I can describe it. When I was pregnant with um, both boys, and both of them were planned, which means that we um, planned the, the pregnancies, so they were um, brought in this world with love. Um, during both pregnancies, I only looked at beautiful things, listened to beautiful music like Chopin. So you know what? It shows because they are very soft gentlemen. Of course, if someone were to mess with them, um, you know, they have the, the instinct, the wolf instinct in them. <laughs> but... Um, as a mom, um, I'm very protective over my, my children, and I grow them up with a lot of love. I tell them daily how much I love them. The eldest is 22, and my youngest is 17. And I grow them up with warmth, but at the same time, I give them the same um, Jamaican upbringing that I grew up, the same way that I grew up. And um, I instill that the love... Um, teaching them how to treat others, how they want to be treated. And um, it, it shows, and I am very, and I feel very blessed with my sons today. A lot of people blame others for their problems in life, that they're not happy, but you're pretty strong about only you can make you happy. You put the responsibility right on the individual. Oh, definitely. I believe that happiness is a choice. You see, you can have... You can be the poorest person with just a little room living in a one bedroom with a roof over your head and you have and you probably 
eat from hand to mouth, so you, you have enough food to eat. And yet, you are this vibrant, happy person because it's your choice to be happy. And yet, you can have the movie stars um, who live in mansions and they have 10 cars and chauffeurs and, you know, and everything and go to the restaurants daily and eat um, every kind of food, take a, a, a jet, private jet to some exotic island to eat some special food. But yet, you know what? Yeah, you can have those people who they're unhappy, they want to end their lives, they don't feel good about themselves, they have to use drugs, they have low self-esteem. So I have seen that from time to time, especially as a first-grade teacher, um, being in the schools and seeing all different type of lifestyles, knowing that happiness is a choice. It's not like, oh, I'm going to feel happy if I go out and buy this beautiful red dress. Probably you're going on to buy this dress and you get home, you still will feel just exactly the way that you choose to feel. So that's my philosophy. When did your dad pass away? Um, November 7th this year will be five years. Five years. Now, there are friends, colleagues who were intrigued with the way you dealt with your dad's passing. Tell us about that. What were you feeling, and how did you deal with it? I dealt with it in a way that I didn't even know that I would deal with it. Um, I have been spiritually stronger over the last decade, and Alongside that, I've become even closer with my father over the years. Um, he has been a, a strong spiritualist, and so have I. So we have been hearing our spirituality together, talking about it. I've been exploring Buddhism and um, Hinduism, and I'll share it with my dad and talk to him on a spiritual level. I would talk to him about um, lucid dreams, about... Um, being clear auditory, being able to read energies. And so with all of this, you know, I could speak openly about my spirituality, about the various gifts that I get from God that um, I'm able to help others. And I would ask him about it and um, I would talk about it. Now, a year before he passed, he wanted to see me more. And he said to me, you know, he called me Chirpy, you know, because growing up, um, he said I was happy like a little bird. But, you know, he'd say, Chirpy, Angela, daddy's going home. And he didn't have to explain to me. Once he told me that, I said, hmm. I said, you really think that? But you seem fine, you know. And he wasn't sick that time. He didn't show any form of sickness. So I was, like, intrigued by this and got closer to him, even closer on a spiritual level and... um Anything spiritual or religious-wise, I would ask him for guidance, and I would bring over the, the children to see him more often. And um, and then when he started to have that pain, and first I thought it was his appendix. I said, no, Daddy, probably it's your, it's your appendix. Because growing up, I didn't even see my dad as much as have a common cold. So I didn't think anything of it. He was in good shape and form, so... I didn't think, oh, you know, he's getting sick. And for his age, he looked so, like, years younger than what his real age is. So I, I didn't even think of it. But on a soulful level, I felt like something something was wrong. And I, and then um, 
we found out later that it, he had stage four colon cancer, and in the way in which he dealt with it, he wanted me to help him to prepare on his journey home. His, you know, and his only impeding worry or thought was about my mom. So basically, it was me getting everything ready, getting ready um, to use my spiritual gifts that I had also to see his journey through um, with aromatherapy, um, the music when he got to hospice, and getting the getting the priest to come over to um, you know for his, the last rites and bless him and make sure um, almost like you're getting ready for a trip to on a vacation. But I believe so strongly in God and I'm so God fearing and with all that my dad was sharing with me, knowing that he really was was departing and um I had to make sure I had my soul strong enough even though inside me my heart was was low because I didn't want to to lose him. But I know every time I'd ask him, Daddy, when you go, let me know that you're still with me when you're gone, you know? So he helped, and along with being a spiritualist, it helped me to deal with it in such a way that almost seems so enchanting to me that um, if someone had asked me years ago, uh, um, oh, how are you, how are you, how are you going to deal with when your dad passed or your mom passed? I would be like, I wouldn't even want to touch this subject. And I am still sometimes in awe with how his whole departure from this world went. Yeah. We've been listening to Angela Brent Harris. She's the author of her book, Love Doesn't Die, and she calls this book a magical journey of memories of her father and and the whole family of the values, the traditions, the strength of great parents, the effect they had on her, and, and how that has helped her throughout her life. Tell us, Angela, what's the best way to get your book? Best way to get my book, you can get it from Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, iUniverse as well. Um, if you're local, you can get the book at in Florida. It's in Delray Beach. There's a beautiful, amazing store called Shining Through, and you can get a copy, um, hard copy, from them there as well. And um, that's basically uh, how you can get the book in both um, in both hard copy format as well as um, you know in the other um, Kindle format as well. Thank you so much, Angela, for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. Have been a pleasure. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Do you ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing. More joy and less judgment. You're not alone. Come to The Living Room, a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We're saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. 
Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Reliable. Oh, no, it isn't called that. It's called Leader Reliability, where leadership, culture, and profitability collide. And our author who joins me from Michigan, Jeff Dudley. Welcome, Jeff, to the program. Thanks, Jay. This is a book that a lot of uh, authors attempt to finalize or, or focus on about leadership. How did you come to write your book? What is your background that allows you to comment on this important topic? Well, Jay, I have 35 years of professional experience in the chemical industry. Uh, but the, the interesting thing about my life is from a very little boy, I was, uh, I was put in leadership positions. I, uh, from a sports analogy, I uh, was a catcher on the baseball team. I was a quarterback on the football team and uh, continued uh, to play uh, sports into my uh, college career. So always in leadership positions. And then, uh, ironically enough, when, uh, when I started my career, I had uh, uh, my leader, uh, when I first started working, became ill. So I was thrown into a leadership position uh, in the first six months of my professional career. So leadership's always been important to me, and what I have done uh, in my professional career is try to grow other leaders. I think uh, that's what leaders really do, is if they are being leaders, they don't create followers, they create other leaders. So my 35 years in the professional industry, but my lifelong uh, willingness and desire to lead uh, puts me in a position, I think, that I can write about this topic. I'll pose the question that comes up in Chapter 2. Uh, what makes it so hard? Why is leadership such a difficult thing for people to, to get a grasp of? Well, I think what happens is people try to, uh, to create followers, and I think what they do is they begin to manage. Hmm. And there's an incredible difference between managing and leading. Uh, managing, uh, the followers listen and uh, wait for you to tell them what to do, and leaders just enable their uh, employees and their colleagues and those who are around them to do their job uh, and more are a coach and mentor uh, and care more about the success of the the people that are around them than maybe their own. And leaders, uh, real leaders, actually do set examples and sometimes are the hardest working people in the in the uh, in the system. Yeah, they're they're. Uh, I think a great, if again a great sports analogy. If you look at uh, most of the captains on uh, hockey hockey teams, they're no doubt the usually the hardest workers and spend the most time on the ice. And I think that's the same thing in the in the professional world uh, in business is that. Yeah, maybe behind the scenes, but there's uh, always lots of work going on. Jeff, what's your style of writing? Would you consider it uh, informational only, or is it uh, more conversational in your approach? I try to be more conversational. I try to pose questions, and and then depending on the question I pose, sometimes I I create my own answer. But uh, I like to uh, I like to engage uh, the reader and uh, have the reader feel like they're having a dialogue. One thing that's interesting about your title, and, and certainly one that I focused in on, was the uh, the aspect of reliability. There's more to leadership than just uh, standing on the sidelines and, and giving out uh, instructions, and as you've already mentioned. Reliability, how important is that, and why did you use that in your title? Well, reliability, my definition for reliability, and being in the, in the chemical industry 
most people's definition for reliability is about assets and how assets work and things like that. But I really believe reliability is a people thing. My definition for reliability is to constantly and consistently meet your commitments. And so that's what people have to do. And when people begin to to do that, uh, they do two things. One, they act like leaders. And two, uh, they minimize unplanned events around them. And so can you imagine working in a whole organization where everyone meets their uh, commitments all the time? Uh, haven't worked in one yet that everyone does, but I've worked in, uh, in a few that then helped to create a few where uh, the vast majority do, and it's, it's just a different way of working. I share with my listeners a little of the uh, anecdotal stories that you've included. One is about the Delta Corporation. What was that story about, and how did that relate to your book and your concept? Well, I am a, uh, a, a client or a uh, customer of Delta Airlines and uh, have, have been back to the days when uh, before Delta merged with Northwest. And uh, I, I unabashedly say that I am a, a huge Richard Anderson fan. I uh, actually had the chance to meet uh, him and had a conversation with him. And his whole conversation was about reliability and how humans are a part of reliability and that that the equipment is only is typically designed to run. It's just uh, we humans intervene and cause it not to. So, uh, and being a uh, a customer of that airline, I have seen them grow and change. And you know the the interesting thing is the the world has too. Because if you go look at their uh, their stock price uh, two years ago and what it is today. Uh, it's just a testament of uh, a culture of reliability. In the professional world, you get the chance to have create the culture, but uh, typically it's either reliable, a reliable culture or a cost culture where people are cost conscious and cost cutting. The two can't live together. You know, uh, it's the great uh, quote by Abraham Lincoln that a house can't survive divided. And uh, I just, uh, I just think that. Uh, that company uh, sort of is is a role model to other uh, big asset-intensive companies on how to create a reliable culture. You've also highlighted the lives of some exceptionally well-known leadership, and you've also commented that they led cultural changes because they disagreed with all or part of the culture they were living in. This applies to business and to personal lives, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. When you... Uh firsthand if you go to try to change the culture of uh of anything you will meet resistance and you know the the few that i named were martin luther king jr and abraham lincoln and uh mother Teresa and the likes of those folks and you know when they uh when they wanted to change the culture and and the interesting thing for me is it typically takes one person to do it and what i tell the the folks that i teach about this topic is that uh, it only takes one other person. So you have to convince one other person that it's the right path to take, and you can begin to change the culture. But you will meet resistance. Culture change is a, is a hard job. It takes a long time. But you have to believe without a doubt that that's what you want to do. And, and if you do, it, it can happen. And I've had the pleasure of working in a few that, that really have. One of the 
items that you also highlight in your book is uh, the ability or the focus of prior prioritizing tasks and processes. Is there an easy way to do that, or do you have a, a special way to accomplish that in your own personal management style? Yeah, what, what I think, uh, I think it is getting the input of others. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that uh, we often do as leaders is think we have to come up with all the answers, and mm-hmm. really what we have to do is ask the questions. Uh, my, my leadership style is to engage the entire organization and, and then uh, to find out uh, from them uh, what the issues are, because they know what the issues are. Oftentimes, they're just never asked, or or they're in a in a uh, managing situation where they're waiting for the the person who is their administrative leader to ask them the question, and and they just they give answers. They they don't give uh, their their opinions. Jeff, who is your leadership role model in your personal life, if you have one, or maybe corporate that uh, inspires you, and also your book when you began to write it who did you have in mind who did you think would would really focus in and benefit from your experience well i i'll answer the second question first i the book is really written for folks who uh, who have organizations or or find themselves in a leadership position uh or they want to change the culture of the the situation they're in to become more reliable they uh and so, so that's who it's written for. But the interesting thing is, is that it also can help an individual change the way they do things. Uh, I think we all have our own personal culture that we create. And if there's something in your personal culture that uh, that you would like to change, uh, the the tenets of this book will help you do that. Uh, I have to give a lot of credit to the to the uh, person who wrote. Uh, wrote in the beginning of my uh, book uh, for me, and his name is Miles Martell. In fact, he is he is he was my mentor professionally and still is a very, very dear friend. Uh, he, uh, cool thing about Miles is he was the speechwriter for Ronald Reagan, so uh, yeah. he, he, he knew some very important people. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he, he took me on uh, as a, uh, a mentee, and he was my mentor. And he's actually the the person that convinced me to write this book. Uh, you know, I had lots of thoughts on how you ran, how you could run businesses, and how you could create leaders. And uh, one day during a uh, mentoring session, he said, uh, "You need to write the, a book, and and I'm going to hold you accountable for that." And that's hmm. sort of where it started. Wow, accountability is an important part of of uh, any lifestyle, isn't it? It, it absolutely is, especially uh, leaders. Uh, when I, when in the book, when I talk about accountability, there, I believe there are two types. There's uh, personal accountability and corporate accountability. And people who are corporately accountable say, "Yeah, I agree with what you're saying," and then they say, "Someone needs to do something." <laughs> uh, what leaders say is, uh, and who take personal accountability is, is, "I need to do something," and then they go do it. Yes, absolutely agree with that. Jeff, how long did it take to complete your book, 168 pages of uh, well, well, thought, well thought out? <laughs> well, I have to give uh, the folks at iUniverse a lot of credit. Uh, you know, I, I put everything in, in a format that, that I thought was a good book, and through lots of good coaching and lots of, uh, lots of uh, just uh, understanding what I was trying to create, they, they helped me tremendously. But 
I would say the whole uh, from from the inception of thinking about writing it to actually doing it, the process probably took me uh, somewhere around eighteen months to to twenty months to complete. Well, that's not too bad. Were there consequences? I mean, any challenges that you hadn't anticipated that you had to overcome? Yeah, the uh, the when I when I wrote the book and uh, and had my original chapter sequence uh, when when they when the folks at iUniverse did the content editing, they said, uh, yeah, we really, really like this, uh, and this is really, really good, but we would move Chapter 6 to Chapter 3, and I can't remember exactly what, but when you move Chapter 6 to Chapter 3, Chapter 6 no longer has 4 and 5 to create it, so there, mm. was, there was some significant rewriting going on, but, but the, the rewrite was absolutely worth it, and, and it, was, uh, it made a much better product. Are you inspired to write a, a sequel or a follow-up to this? Well, you know, one of the interesting conversations I've had with the folks at iUniverse is they they really have said uh, uh, that, uh, you know, you could create this whole thing into a uh, to a self-help book, and, and I really think you could, and I even would have a title for it. Instead of leader reliability, I would combine, I'm great for making up words, I'd call it your reliability. <laughs> and... Uh, and maybe uh, when I uh, when I finally do retire, I retired from uh, from the corporate corporation that I worked at and uh, started my own business. And uh, and fortunate for me, another uh, company actually acquired my business. So now I'm Beautiful. doing a lot of work for them, and uh, and they actually uh, use the content of this book in their. Uh, with how they help their customers, and that's just a great thing. That's another reason I wrote it. I just want to help people. But, uh, you know, when I finally do maybe uh, hang it up for for good, I I think, I'm. you know, it, it might be fun to do it again. Well, congratulations on completing this. Leader Reliability, Jeff Dudley has been my guest from Michigan, where leadership, culture, and profitability collide. Jeff, my listeners need to get a copy of this if they're in any kind of leadership. How do they get one? Uh, it's very, uh, very easy. They can go to uh, the iUniverse website. They can go to uh, Amazon.com, and uh, or they can go to Barnes and Noble and ask them to order it for them. So that's uh, that's the places they can get it. Is there another place they can get in contact with you? Do you have a website? Uh, I do. It is called uh, Leader Reliability. The same title as the. Uh, as the book dot com, so it's a it's an easy find dot com or dot net dot com dot com. Excellent, well, great visiting with you, Jeff. Uh, listeners, get a copy of this if you have any questions about leadership or some uh, want some motivation. This is a book you will need to read. Leader reliability. Jeff Dudley has been my guest. Thank you, Jeff, for joining me today. Thank you for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.